Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Questions coming from Evercore ISI. I'll put the disclaimer up front. Michael Bloomberg, the founder majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. And the question from Evercore ISI as follows. Number one, can Bloomberg rise above the, ta- the attacks? Number two, can anyone deliver a blow to Sanders? Three, can either Klobuchar or Buttigieg use the debate stage yet again to bounce in the polls? And four, can Biden use it to bounce back in the run-up to Super Tuesday, Lisa? Out of those four, what's number one for you? Well, I mean, look, Michael Bloomberg, the founding and majority partner of uh, majority owner of Bloomberg LP. This is going to be his first debate. And I think a lot of people are really focused on him, given how quickly he's risen in the polls. That said, Bernie Sanders has really risen to the front. The fact that he has like become the front runner after Pete Buttigieg had been it for a while, after Elizabeth Warren had been it for a while. Can he maintain that momentum? And does he deliver the same sort of you're with me or against me, whether you're a Democrat or not, leading to his supporters staying home? if he does not get nominated as the Yeah, candidate. and Tom, I'd go as far as saying there's this 2016 comparison with candidate Donald Trump and the Republican Party that Bernie Sanders is not the candidate the party might oh, okay. want or might not want, but it could be the candidate they end up with. I think uh, they will go in the booth and choose, and that's what happens. Is We saw that in New Hampshire uh, with uh, Avengers. Chuck Gabriel with us. He's with Capital Alpha from Minneapolis today, but always focused on Washington as well. Chuck, what's going to be the prism of the Washington you know so well as they look at this debate in Nevada? How will Republicans and Democrats on the Hill, the senators, the members of the House, how will they observe this debate? Well, I, uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, I, I think everybody would be looking very, very closely at Michael Bloomberg and to see how he can actually perform in an uncontrolled environment, uh, taking punches from you know four or five other candidates that uh, really resent uh, his skipping the first four events and sort of just paying his way uh, past uh, past February and into Super Tuesday. So, I think there'll be a big focus on that. But you know, while uh, everyone is lamenting that uh, Michael Bloomberg is so, suddenly developing a conscience about mm-hmm. his billions and taking on Wall Street uh, sort of uh, in a preemptory way, looking forward to tomorrow uh, to tonight. Uh, I think the bigger story, of course, is that Bernie Sanders is the one is the beneficiary of all of this. Uh, and I, I think there is a sort of a you know, that's the second dynamic that will really be in evidence behind all, all right. of the uh, Bloomberg hysteria tonight. And that is the Stop Bernie movement. You have in the back of your wonderful research note the paragraph on the new Wall Street policies, not only of Mayor Bloomberg, but of the others as well. Can you win coast to coast on an anti-Wall Street theme? I don't believe so for a minute. I, I really don't. You know, there there has been no hue and cry uh, among the Democratic candidates outside of Liz Warren, you know, who's really you know uniquely burdened on this, having had led the TARP Commission. Uh, there isn't in Congress. Uh, you know, we actually had a bipartisan bill to, 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 you know, take back a little bit of the Dodd-Frank Act just a couple of years ago. So, you know, when you talk to Americans, they're not talking negatively about Wall Street, except to the extent they're really, you know, uh, incited to do so by these, these populist uh, sort of angry uh, narratives. So I, I don't think so at all. And I, and I, I think they're really, you know, maybe that's good news that we won't have a lot of time to discuss whether Michael Bloomberg has made a financial transaction tax a ceiling rather than a floor rather than a ceiling 
uh, for long because, you know, after uh, this Saturday's Nevada caucuses, and then we go to uh, South Carolina the following Saturday, yeah. we'll only have basically chosen 4% of delegates, but then on Super Tuesday, March 3rd, boom, three Super Tuesdays, 60% of the vote in March. It's happening very quickly, Chuck, so let's talk about electability. Michael Bloomberg, Mr. Bloomberg, arguably has the, the opposite problem that Senator Sanders had, at least in terms of perception. There are people who believe Mr. Bloomberg would struggle to get the nomination ultimately, but ultimately he would do better in the general. The opposite applying to Senator Sanders in the minds of many. I'm just interested in the data, Chuck, that you're looking at at the moment. I'm looking at a new poll from the Post and ABC that essentially still sees Senator Sanders as the most electable, cited by 30% of Democratic leaners as best situated to beat Trump. What do you see in the polls and the data that you look at, Chuck? Well, I, I, I do think that, you know, Sanders has a very, very loyal base of support. And, and you know, there's not a single state where he doesn't have 15, 20, 25 percent. And you know, one of the reasons the Democrats are in this situation is they changed the rules, their, their primary rules, to basically front load more of the primaries and create this 15 percent proportional vote that, you know, a candidate... Uh, can't get any delegates unless they get at least 15 percent in a congressional district or a state. So ironically, you know, you're going to have a very congested field. And I and I, I think that, you know, you're, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about what where we'll be in the end. But, you know, we'll get a very different look at Bloomberg at that time. And I think for I think really what Bloomberg speaks to and those polls speak to is uh, Democrats just want to defeat Donald Trump, and, and they sense that a centrist will do it, and they, they think another billionaire who will get in the ring with the president is the right way to go. But Chuck, I, I don't think that's the majority of the party. Chuck, just yeah. 20, 20 seconds here, I'm wondering, from your perspective, how close do you think we are to sort of honing in on the candidate? I, I think there's maybe a 30, 40 percent chance that, uh, Lisa, that we, we'll, we'll actually have a better chance than people uh, – suspect that we'll know who the Democratic nominee could be. And it very well could be Sanders by the end of March, early April, say uh, mid-April with the New York primary. Yeah. I think that's I think that's yeah. absolutely true. And of course, Wall Street will freak out a bit, but nothing spooks this market. So why not do it now? Chuck Gabriel, thank you so much. With Capital Alpha here as we move to the debate. Right now, we take over some time of Austin Goolsby's. He's at the Bull School of Chicago former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. We've been talking uh, retail right now. Austin, I, I need to talk Fed policy with you, and I want you to defend William Dudley, the former Fed president of New York, who in a Bloomberg opinion piece was heated that this isn't about the blunt instrument of a balance sheet or the blunt instrument about monetary policy, that monetary policy still has an effect on the American economy. If they cut rates once, or dare say twice from here, what does that do to our listeners? Well, you got a lot of listeners, so it, it probably does different things to different ones of them. Um, I have publicly said that I'm skeptical. Not a, look, I still think conventional monetary policy and cutting interest rates does matter for the economy. It's just that right now it matters less than it basically has ever mattered because several of the normal channels are not working. So when you cut interest rates, normally one of the big channels is there's a pent-up stock of people who, say, want to refinance their homes. 
they've been waiting for rates to come down. And then when you cut the rates, you get a whole bunch of these people mm-hmm. who have been sitting on the sidelines. And the same for business investment and the same for consumer durables, uh, you know, bu- buying autos and stuff like that. Right. The problem is we've had the rates so low for so long that anybody who was waiting to buy a new car, to do a business investment, to refinance their home, they were waiting for rates to get low enough. They already did it. So there's not any of that pent-up demand. Um, And so that channel is less effective. And then the second is, if we were, let's say the coronavirus got over here and people freaked out and stopped going to work and and we had a downturn like what they're facing in China. The normal Fed move, as you know, is to cut rates four to 500 basis points over a relatively short period of time. That's the kind of signature Fed move to fight off a recession. You can't cut the interest rate 500 basis points when it's already too low. So I am a huge fan of Bill Dudley's. I was on the economic advisory panel to the New York Fed when he was the president of the New York Fed. And I think there is a lot of wisdom in his piece but the part of it in which he's kind of pleading to the world, please still respect our the, the power of our monetary policy, I think it's, it, that part is maybe overstated. So, Professor, what tools do you think the Fed should use should it need to act to stimulate our economy at some point in the future? Well, look, they should use the conventional monetary channel. It's just they got the shorter runway, so you're not going to be landing a 747 on it. Uh, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna have to focus on the on the smaller planes. And I continue to think that the unconventional monetary policies, like forward guidance, like QE, like a series of things, are modestly effective, but they should certainly be in the toolkit. Um, I think for the people who believe that those unconventional monetary policies and the balance sheet are super directive of the markets or they're the thing that has led stocks to rise, you know, 30% in 2019, I I I would like to see what data they're looking at cuz my read of the data is their their impact there has been some impact but it's been a modest impact if you if you actually start going and looking at the various assets. So as as we take a look at today's economy, you know, it has been clear for some time that it has been driven in very, very large part by the consumer. How confident are you in the U.S. consumer today? I think you're right. It's been driven by the consumer and the job market. That's the that's the that's the shiny part of the economy. I'm still pretty confident on them. Um, though the only thing is anything that destroys consumer confidence puts our recovery at risk. That, that part is clear. And I will say two things that historically can wreck consumer confidence in fast order are a massive political dysfunction and meltdown in Washington and Did I say one or A? I think I said A. (laughs) B, uh, natural disasters or infectious disease. For sure, if we got the coronavirus spreading in the U.S., 
I think it's hard to well, fathom that that would not freak out uh, consumer yeah. confidence in a short basis. Short of an epidemic becoming a pandemic, there's a trillion-dollar deficit. Are you oblivious? I mean, come on. You had to sit there and explain CBO to presidents and that. I'm looking at a $1.3 trillion run rate to begin with off a plugged-in GDP number that's, oh, maybe it, it works, maybe it doesn't. Is Austin Goolsby telling me that Senator Dirksen's a billion here, a billion there, a trillion here, a trillion there, doesn't matter? You know, it does matter. The part that's disturbing is not the one trillion. What is the it? The part that's the disturbing is the one trillion in a boom. Uh, because right, if then there weren't a boom, it's going to be two trillion plus. Well, no, wait, so, this is important. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm going to go all John Taylor on you and automatic stabilizers. If you modeled in an NBER recession, what would a $1.3 trillion deficit become? Double it? Yeah, probably double it. You know, it depends on how deep the recession yeah. is. So we saw the the yeah. deficit exploded to record levels in the first one to two years of the Obama administration because it was the deepest recession. Well, you had a small slowdown. Yeah, it wasn't and the And then Cubs. as the economy comes back, the deficit gets yeah. cut in half. What we have basically never had in the United States economic history is a circumstance where we're growing and the unemployment rate is below 4%, but the deficit is exploding. Yeah. Uh, so I think it, it, it easily could be above $2 trillion in the event of a recession. And my thing about deficits is it's not that it's going to be a fiscal Greece-style fiscal crisis that drives the U.S. interest rate through the roof. The problem of the debt and the deficits is not that they drive up the interest rate. It's that you have to pay back the money. And so 10, 20, 30 years from now, our kids are going to be coming of age and need training. We're going to want to fund Social Security and scientific research and every other thing that the government does. And we're going to just have a bigger and bigger share of our budget is being spent on interest on the debt that we're, that we're doing right now. That's the... That's the problem. That's the problem. What is if I'm a you know a bull on deficits and national debt? What's my argument for saying it doesn't really matter? Well, it depends what the it is. Um, the the debt capacity, let's call it, of the U.S. government is vastly in excess of where the debt is now. So. It doesn't matter for interest rates in the United States th that we are doing this. And the, there is, as you know, I've been a public opponent and been blasted by the MMT people. There is one aspect that I have always said the MMT people are correct, which is by, by observed practice, you can spend trillions of dollars you can increase the deficit by trillions of dollars without tanking the economy. We did it with the George W. Bush $2 trillion tax cut unpaid mm -hmm. for, then a $2 trillion war in Iraq unpaid for, and then Trump, another $2 trillion right. tax cut unpaid for. Those things did not no. blow up the interest rate. They didn't blow up the economy. But we do have to pay back that money with interest. That's my, yeah. that's my point. Austin, thank you so much. Very generous of you. Professor Goolsby is at the University of uh, Chicago. 
Let us begin a three-hour conversation with a gentleman from Yale University. Stephen Roach invented Morgan Stanley Economics. He literally brought the digital age to print economics a million years ago. He is uh, holding court, giving out quality C's at Yale University. Steve, it's been too long. Wonderful to have you on. Nice to talk to you, Tom and John. In your book, The Next Asia, you have a great uh, essay, China's Macro Imperatives. Right now, they have domestic imperatives. From where you sit, what is the to-do list for Beijing? Number one, two, and three is simply to control the virus. The economy will come later. The economy is strong, resilient, uh, and changing, but it's being subjected to a, um, uh, a powerful shock, and um, it's all hands on deck to deal with that. And as I said, the economy will... Um, uh, come later i mean within this and steve you've you know i've seen you with the pandas out in western china near chengdu and all that you know up the yangtze river you've got uh wuhan uh, where that big bend is what's the thing the media and for that matter global wall street get wrong about the resiliency of china to bounce back once they get through this virus well you know in in the midst of a crisis tom whether it's you know in the depths of uh, 08 or in, you know, other uh, seemingly catastrophic developments like the, financial, the Asian financial crisis of 97, 98, it seems like the, the world or your favorite economy is imploding. But these things have a way of, of passing. Right now, you know, the, uh, the evidence on infection rates and fatality rates remains worrisome. There's some second derivatives that are looking a little bit better, but the situation that you just alluded to in Japan is now increasingly problematic. And I would just note here that Japan, the third largest economy in the, in the world, is probably back in recession again. I mean, they had a horrible uh, print on fourth quarter GDP. The trade data released this morning point to spillovers into the first quarter of this year. So you're looking at two consecutive quarters of um, of uh, decline for a long recession-prone Japanese economy who shot itself in the foot with another increase in their um, consumption tax. So you know, China is um, uh, at a standstill. All the, the daily trackers of coal consumption and uh, traffic uh, are flat uh, uh, post-Lunar uh, New Year when they normally have bounced back dramatically. So that economy is printing uh, a very low number, if barely positive at all, in the first quarter. The world economy is starting to feel like a, a transitory, hopefully temporary recession in the first half of this year. Professor, you did a fantastic interview with Barron's recently in the last couple of weeks, and I'd like to take the opportunity to point our audience to go and pick that up if they can. I'm just interested in exploring this further. Professor, it's not just Japan, of course, it's Germany as well, the economy stagnating there. Just in terms of the dynamics that are shaking the global economy just a little bit, relatively speaking, what is it you see that's transitory? What is temporary? Why will we come out of this the other side as the year grows older in better shape? Uh, the virus, we now call it COVID-19. Um, you know, if you look at a SARS trajectory, John, you know, there was a, a one-quarter hit and then a very sharp rebound over the next uh, four quarters. This is not SARS, but it, its infection rate is higher, but its mortality rate 
is lower, I think it will take longer uh, to um, uh, get a, a grip on this. But I think that the trajectory is, is, is relevant and comparable this time as well. Professor Roach, you wrote Unbalanced, the Codependency of America and China. And I want to just put out a hypothetical that say it takes longer to get the coronavirus under control. This goes on for a longer period of time. Are people overly sanguine about the U.S. economy being immune to the impacts that we're seeing in China right now? Of course they are, Lisa. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. economy is viewed as Teflon-like, bulletproof, uh, and uh, there's seemingly nothing that could uh, touch it. But, you know, Greenspan had the best line of all. Uh, actually, it was back in 97, 98, where he said the U.S. is not an oasis. And with the rest of the world, um, China, Japan, you, John pointed out Germany and um, France as well, um, on the skids here, um, that's going to come uh, back to uh, to bite us as well. And so our growth rate, which is not as weak as it is uh, in other economies, the world is far from strong. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're cruising it, it too, which is not a, the, the biggest cushion uh, to deal with a, another global shock. Professor Roach, where do you expect to first see the effects of the slowdown in China, in Japan, in Germany, manifest themselves in the U.S.? Well, yeah, I think it'll come from our um, uh, our trade numbers. There's also already, as we've seen from uh, Apple, uh, a clogging <clears throat> of China-centric supply chains, which is uh, going to uh, stifle uh, our ability to, to buy our favorite electronic right. device. And, and there are other spillover effects as well. Steve, we've got to go, but I, I got one key question, which is just so critical, and I know our listeners want to hear your response to it. What is the cost of the accommodation of this central bank. I mean, the real Fed funds target rate is back negative. You know, we're not down at Stan Fisher alter accommodation, but we're there or on our way there, I should say. What's the price of the free lunch we've got right now? Well, look, it's a long um, a long answer, uh, Tom, but you know, free money uh, um, enables financial instability. Uh, it enables um, zombie-like behavior of um, corporations who might otherwise be disciplined with a more meaningful cost of capital. And, of course, it facilitates uh, the most reckless uh, fiscal policy the United States has ever had uh, in an economic expansion. Well, we, the Fed enables uh, the, the Congress to keep uh, printing a trillion-dollar deficit as far as the eye can see. Steve Roach, thank you so much. With Yale University, an update there. It's been way too long. we got to get him in more often. He more gets regularly. Going. He's busy he's, man. Because he's, he's always busy, and, and he brings a holistic theme, almost a you know, balance sheet theme to economics. I've always enjoyed our exchanges on China and what happens <clears throat> with global trade. This is going to be fun. Because Sakjan, Société Générale, the great derivatives house of Paris, um, always has a sophisticated note, and they've been pretty cautious on global GDP and U.S. GDP. Sophie Wynn with us, doing multi-asset, and Sophie has the word in her report, John. What is it, transitory? No, Don't not tra not existential. even existential. No, not even zeitgeist. G-O-L-D. We have a major oh, house here talking gold. Sophie Wynn, how do you put gold in the mix here in your asset strategy? 
Um, good morning. So from an asset allocation standpoint, um, we think that at this point, having a balanced portfolio makes sense. But having decent port for protection through treasuries and gold um, makes sense. So gold is really one of the best port for protection that you could have right. in your asset allocation. Well, I don't want to go to tenth of a decimal point, but give me a percentage in gold right here at 1600 uh, we don't have a um, target on it, but I guess that when you look at how gold and uh, U.S. dollar have decorrelated um, in recent weeks, it really allows you to understand that barbell portfolios at this point is really uh, the trend uh, for investors. Sophia, the risk mitigating characteristics of, say, gold becoming more attractive relative to, say, treasuries? We like both, but it's clear that having gold at this point where from a relative basis, if you look at gold versus copper and the link with the 10-year treasuries, it's clear that gold is really a way to protect portfolio in case of risk-off, which is the case right now with this black swan scenario of the coronavirus. Um, When everyone is talking about how expensive bonds are, uh, so it feels like gold at this point is really the best candidate. Sophie, is it likely that gold will keep rallying in tandem with U.S. equities? It feels like in this environment where you have a, some uncertainties regarding how long this coronavirus is going to last, but also, as you mentioned, our mild recession scenario uh, that we're mm-hmm. having uh, with these two negative quarters, this two quarters of negative GDP, um, it could be a way for investors yeah. to have at the same time equities and gold in their portfolio. Yeah, but what kind of equities? I mean, I mean, you do multi-asset strategy, which is salvaging my 401k, which is a 201k because I didn't buy Tesla when Pharaoh bought it. Sophie, what kind of equities am I comfortable with if I need to make a return to catch up with everybody else? Yeah, very difficult question. So in the well, short, that's what we day, do. It's I Wednesday, don't... difficult question day. What kind of equities do I buy? Um, so for now, our strategy is more. So in the short terms, um, in the short term, it feels like the U.S. dollar assets are going to benefit on this black swan scenario. But more in the long term, we continue to stay away from U.S. growth. So we don't really like U.S. tech. What do you like? And prefer to focus on value um, portions. Um, on the equity market, so basically EM equities, uh, where the growth differentials is quite attractive, but also valuation yeah. perspective, uh, it's good, and also Japanese equities. Sophie, thank you so much. Sophie Wynn was Society General there today with a really, John, almost controversial on Japanese equities there. I mean, that's, I'm going to call that an outlier call. Shall I bring you my five stages of diminishing bullishness? I love this, John. Do you like this? Please, at, yes. At, at number one, you'll hear people saying it's transitory. If things get worse, you'll hear them turn to t- number two, that the U.S. is resilient. And if things get a little bit worse from there, you'll turn to number three, which is the U.S. is decoupling. Yes. And then if things get yes. a little bit yeah. worse from there, you'll turn to number four, which is the Fed will save us. And then the final stage of diminishing bullishness is we're doomed. That's just full capitulation. We're in stage one, transitory. <laughs> In the Wikipedia for Charles Schwab, there's a paragraph. It's five, six, eight pages down under history. 
and it doesn't capture what happened in 1975. Some of us lived this, and it was absolutely extraordinary how an upstart out of San Francisco and their first branch in Sacramento, California, came out and revolutionized the investment business and revolutionized it step by step. It, Paul, what's so important here uh, as we bring in David Rubenstein is it didn't happen all of a sudden. It was step by incremental yep. by incremental step through 75 and 76 until we were there. Let's listen in to Charles Schwab with David Rubenstein. Do your children or grandchildren ever say, you know, can you give me a stock tip or something because I got some money? We have a mutual fund, actually it's an index fund called the Schwab 1000. I use that all the time for my kids, the ETF portion of the thing. I've taught them all about it. But in some respects, it's a little bit boring. Uh, I'd rather have the kids buy individual stocks. So what I'm going to do coming up this spring, we're going to introduce fractionalization of stocks. So you can buy a small fraction of Facebook, small fraction of uh, Netscape or, or Amazon. Amazon is a high price. In Amazon. Other words, Amazon, let's say it's trading for $1,300 a share. Some people can't afford $1,300 a share, so they could buy. How about $130? How about okay, $13 so worth? Really important concept. It is the talk of the industry right now. I know Motif uh, really leading on that, but many others looking at fractional share purpose. Right now, we, oh, we look at the complete David Rubenstein. His peer-to-peer -peer is just brilliant. This time with Charles Schwab. Mr. Rubenstein joins us uh, this morning. David, what a joy to hear you and a very vital Charles Schwab walk through the past. What's he say about the future of individual investor uh, relations, rights, and privileges? Well, remember, he came from a very modest uh, background and then revolutionized the industry, as you said. And for those who don't remember, the revolution was this. In the old days, before 74, 75, if you bought a stock, you paid a fixed commission, and everybody paid the same commission around the country. He came up with the idea, after the federal government allowed uh, this to be deregulated, to kind of have very low fees. Now the fees are basically zero for buying stocks. But he's built a company uh, that is now managed about $4 trillion, and it's the leader in, uh, in brokerage uh, accounts for, for people all over the United States and all over the world. And he's, he's now 82 years old. Um, he overcame a lot of uh, handicaps. He was dyslexic, didn't know he was dyslexic, was not a good student, never found out until he was much older that he was dyslexic, and that was the reason he wasn't a good student. He almost flunked out of Stanford. He got into Stanford initially because he was a great golfer, and he's still a pretty good golfer. Uh, but he built a business that is now legendary, and his face is so well-known because the original advertising people said to him, why don't we use your face? He was reluctant to do it, but then it was used and now became so well-known that his face is known to everybody, in effect. So, David, it's interesting. Just recently, Charles Schwab kind of shocked the market yet again by going to zero commissions on a lot of equity yes. transactions. I, what's the economics behind that? It seems like that's a big hit to their revenue. Uh, not so much. I mean, I think they were probably getting maybe 4% or so of their revenue from those commissions. Where How do they afford to do it? Well, they sell funds, and when you sell funds, you charge management fees for those funds. But also, they have 
uh, enormous amounts of cash reserves by people that keep their funds on account with them. And so they're, they're making interest on it, and sometimes they're not charging that much uh, to the client or not paying that much to the client. So they have about $4 trillion, and they're, they're earning fees on that, and they're investing that. So that's how they can afford to do it. Really, the, the brokerage commission business now is relatively modest, and there are, others are also going to zero commission. So it seems like it's a gift, and it is giving away some money, and maybe their stock will go down a little bit because of it. But in truth, uh, they have so many other ways of making money, it's not a big deal. Yeah, Dave, when I think of retail investing in this country, I think of you know the thundering herd of Merrill Lynch. I think, of course, uh, Charles Schwab and some other discount brokers. Yet a lot of Americans still are not invested in the market. Does Charles have a, a Chuck have a sense of kind of maybe how they can increase participation? Of course, they want people to, to buy more stocks. That's why he's talking about fractionalization, where people would buy stocks and, and so forth. But remember, a lot of people are investing uh, through their 401 Ks and their IRAs, and also a lot of people have pension funds at their place of employment, and the pension funds are investing in the stock market, and you could argue in effect that they're investing mm -hmm. on behalf of uh, the future retirees. Uh, clearly, the stock market is a much bigger business than it was in 1974-75, mm -hmm. and the reason he was able to pull this off, it wasn't that he was the only person who said, let's have discount fees. He invested heavily in technology, and others were not willing to do that, and he put a lot of his money into technology. He ultimately sold his company after a few years to Bank of America. Bank of America kind of ran it into the ground, and he bought it back, and then he closed on the deal right before the bubble burst in, in, yeah. in October of 1989. And so his stock went way down, and he was worried whether he could, the company could survive, but actually he came back and, again, invested heavily yeah. in technology and became the market leader in this business. David, thank you. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer -peer conversations, really quite good with Charles Schwab tonight, 9 p.m. on Bloomberg uh, Television. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.